Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about safeguarding marriage. What I hope will be a simple, straightforward, and non-judgmental view of divorce. You can listen to Inappropriate Conversations on iTunes, Zune, and also at Stitcher Radio, Stitcher.com, the better way to listen to radio. I'm going to repeat myself in this Inappropriate Conversation. I have no doubt about it. I think there are pieces and parts of some of this material that I've covered before, but I feel like it's a good idea to bring it all together under this umbrella of discussing divorce. And you know, some of the material will be a little bit about my own personal relationship, and some of those ideas go you know, really all the way back to the very first few months of inappropriate conversations. But others have been sprinkled in along the way, uh, even you know, hearkening back in some ways to my thoughts about the Clinton impeachment scandal. That would have been episode 40, very first year. But first, maybe to put a big disclaimer out there, there's a little bit about myself. And part of the reason I want to cover this ground this week is because I'm going to hit some material next week from a nostalgia perspective, and it kind of helps to establish a bit of a baseline. So my parents took seriously that whole till death do us part thing. And when my father turned 60, he died. And that was kind of the end of the end of the marriage there. The same thing can be said for my wife's parents. Uh, my wife had you know, one uncle and his death was the end of that marriage. And on my mom's side of the family, we had uh, two sisters, two aunts of mine. One of them divorced remarried and remained married until her death. The other one also married until death. And on my father's side of the family, likewise, my aunt and my uncle were married, you know, the whole time that, that I knew them. And again, were separated by death. On my wife's side of the family, there's one significant divorce of note. And on my parents' side of the family, there's one significant divorce of note. But when you look at the odds and you look at the statistics that we so often hear about the number of marriages that end in divorce, I come from a very strange family in that a lot of these marital relationships were not only, you know, a longstanding, but very loving. There were, of course, exceptions. I was too young to understand when my aunt got divorced. My parents simply worded that there was abuse involved. And I think that they meant that under a big wide umbrella. I don't know whether there was physical abuse or whether it was simply psychological or whether there was sexual misconduct. These are facts and figures which have never been provided to me. In some ways, when an event like that happens when you are only 10, 11 years old, whenever the topic comes up later as an adult, 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later, I still find I'm getting the answers that I would have gotten when I was 10 or 11 years old. It's like my relationship with my aunt is frozen at that moment in time and no one's providing any details. But it's enough to say, just to put a little pin there and to say, on my side of the family, there's been a divorce due to some sort of, some sort of abuse. And on my wife's side of the family, there was a divorce due to adultery. But in our relationship, it's a very solid thing. I, I, my marriage is as strong today as it's ever been. And this is a relationship that goes back to when I was 16 years old. So there's probably a lot of very good dating and marital advice out there from, you know, columnists and experts who would say, you know, you know, you got to be very careful. You don't want that high school puppy love to turn into something that you, you get into your head and you commit too soon and all that. 
and I respect that point of view, and I realize that it's just not my experience, and that maybe I'm an exception that proves the rule, so the rule itself isn't necessarily bad. But anything that I say to and about the issue of divorce is going to be coming from a perspective of clear weakness. I don't have that personal experience. I don't have a lot of direct information. And most of the time in inappropriate conversations, I'm trying to share things from a perspective of nostalgia. At the very least, if I'm going to do storytelling, I want to do somebody else's storytelling well. But most of the time, it's my story. Not this time. I can only really speak to the margins of this. But I wanted to talk about the issue of divorce and the value of marriage to the extent that I can, given that my information and my personal experience is genuinely marginal. So one of the stories that I've told before was being a rather young kid, probably, again, call it 10 years old, may or may not have been that old, in church and finding out, because it, it was a public sort of a scandal kind of a situation, that there was going to be a divorce in the church, that one of the couples was going to break up. And it was a woman in the choir, the man may have been in the choir as well, I'm not sure, who had had an affair. And I don't know whether the affair was somebody else in the church or whether it was somebody that you know was you know sort of the neighborhood or you know coworker. I don't know that particular information. All I know is that this was a couple that I had known since the the first day I was part of that church. I started going to the church at a pretty young age, you know, five six years old at the latest. So any relationship that had been established before my time, I think when you're that young, it sort of seems like it it was there forever. That it's really hard for somebody who's even five or ten years old to conceive of the time before their parents were married. And the same thing would have applied to this couple, the time before the couple at church that I kind of sort of knew was married. The end result of this adultery, which was you know kind of on her part, was that the, uh, the couple divorced, the man left the church, the woman stayed in the church. And that was where I began to get a little bit confused. Now, I went at this age to a fantastic church. It's a church that I perhaps have offered criticisms of in the past and no doubt will in the future. Nobody's perfect. But at the time that I went there, it was a very vibrant congregation and a very equipping congregation. And if you view them from the perspective of maybe the beginning of a conservative backlash against the hippie culture, so before Ronald Reagan's presidency, but you you could see elements in retrospect of where Ronald Reagan's support would come from. So in that context, I was nevertheless treated with a great deal of dignity and respect I was brought up in the church and raised appropriately, and some of my favorite memories are actually in that church, singing in the choir in elementary and junior high school, and attending Sunday school. In fact, I remember really enjoying my sixth grade Sunday school class so much that I was probably the kid who was the most aggravated among my siblings if we were going to be late to church because I wanted to be in there. I was learning, and the teacher was making a way of making the learning fun. So a good environment to be in, but something threatened that environment in the form of this divorce. And you didn't really know what was going to come from it. I can't recall before ever having a divorce in the church. Again, from the way I was raised, these couples that had been together, even the ones who didn't seem to get along, were going to stay together. It seems somewhat inconceivable. And this isn't necessarily true of the mid 1970s. I would say that in the 1950s, that would have been the case. There would have been an assumption that even in a very unhappy marriage, perhaps even in an abusive marriage, there would be an expectation that the couple would stay together and just deal with it somehow. 
But by the time you got to the middle of the 1970s, that wouldn't have been the case anymore that any relationship that had abuse in it, like my aunt's, whatever abuse happened to mean in that case, uh, would have been you know, candidate for divorce. And I want to talk a little bit about that, the church's role in marriage, especially the end of marriage, in just a little bit. But first, to kind of get some of the familiar material out of the way, the choir director was a good friend of the family, and her husband was the organist. And this was a this was a really cool guy. I don't think he had too many uh, direct interactions with the youth group, certainly not junior high where I would have been in the youth group. But he nevertheless had a way of making it fun. He would sit up in the choir balcony in this particular congregation, the way the sanctuary was set up, and play the organ. The organ at that time wasn't down on the main floor. And I remember one time to raise money for something. It may have been like a, a hunger walk or some sort of you know church renovation or a missionary group or something. He decided to play the hymnal all the way through. So he's going to start at the very first hymn and just play cover to cover, meaning that if that particular hymn had six verses, he was going to play through the verse chorus structure six times, quite literally playing properly, correctly, fully, and completely uh, for donations, for pledges. Uh, how many hymns could he play? How much would you donate per hymn? That sort of thing. And over the course of yeah, more than 24 hours, I think, it was a, a good long time, he sat up at the organ in the choir loft and played straight through. And of course, I saw him on a regular basis because whenever you practiced with the choir, he was typically there as the accompanist. So I remember asking him about this couple in the church. I said, well, what happened? I didn't understand why one part of the couple left the church and the other part stayed. I wasn't 100% sure I understood even what adultery might mean. I just knew that it was, it was the biggie. It was the reason that a couple would break up. And if you paid any attention when Scripture was being read or when you know, people were you know, covering a chapter in a Sunday school class or at least an adult Sunday school class, you know, that word would pop up from time to time. Jesus has things to say about adultery. The Old Testament, of course, has things to say about adultery. You can't memorize the Ten Commandments without coming across that word. But what he told me was very interesting. He sort of reminded me was his approach, was one that he wasn't necessarily giving me new information, but telling me something that I should remember as if I should have already known, that the church doesn't function like judge and jury. It isn't there necessarily to dispense justice. The church may call for justice, and the church may act in a way that foments justice. But he said, at the end of the day, the church is a lot more like a hospital. It's about taking people who are hurt, who are hurting, who have been injured in some way, or perhaps the word you might hear today so often is that are broken, and give them a place where they can receive the necessary healing. Therefore, it wouldn't make sense to cast either one of the people out of the church, the man and this couple left voluntarily. And it certainly wouldn't make sense to punitively expel the woman from the church, even though her adultery was, by all accounts, the source of the divorce. His attitude was, no, this is somebody who's hurt, who's broken, who's made a terrible mistake, and who's dealing with the consequences. And now more than ever, she needs to be surrounded by a loving, nurturing, forgiving church family. And those are words that I took very much to heart. I wonder if that conversation years ago has something to do with the fact that I've been very aware of the role of the church in my marriage or not. I don't know, but I do know that you know, one of the reasons that I take divorce so seriously is not because the church that I went to as a very young child seemed to take it casually. 
it didn't react by executing a judgment against the people who committed the big sin. It took a completely different approach, and that approach left a message that has resonated with me to this very day. You will hear some within the church when the topic of marriage comes up get very hysterical, to be honest with you, about who is getting married. I've heard people say that this couple lived together when they were in college, therefore our pastor shouldn't marry them now. And it raises questions, of course, of whether or not there is some rule that says having once lived together, quote, in sin, unquote, meant that you never could be joined together in marriage. My answer to that has always been perhaps a somewhat liberal idea of saying, wouldn't it be better if the couple were to get married? I've heard you know other you know tales of people saying, well, because they've cohabitated, they now have to live separately for a year. And in some cases, I've heard that expressed even in the rather extreme situation where the couple already has a child together. In a sense, creating a mock separation or even a mock divorce from the common law situation that the family has grown and developed around. You know, to me, that never made sense. And yet, on some level, you can make a biblical argument about it because. The common line that you see between the words of Jesus and the Gospels and what Paul says, particularly in his letters to the Corinthians, tying back all the way, of course, to Hebrew scripture, which is what they're quoting, is that divorce is permissible in the event of adultery. And the indication is that it isn't permissible for any other reason except for that, which is why when you get somebody who has a very strong conservative mindset into a conversation about questions of marriage and divorce, it is not unusual to have people who have a really passionate perspective about you know, no-fault divorce and this notion of how free and easy it is to proclaim irreconcilable differences and just dissolve the relationship on those grounds. The notion is that divorce is only permissible in the case of adultery. This, of course, is a silly game that we play because if the church were to take that stance and to hold that stance in a harsh way, as if the church somehow had final and direct authority over all of these decisions that would trump whatever the courts or any other, any other level of government might do, then all the couple would have to do is to sort of mutually agree to commit adultery against one another, and boom, you've got the claim. So I think the no-fault divorce idea isn't necessarily a complete washout, because if a couple want to dissolve their relationship, there really isn't a heck of a lot the state can do to force them to stay together without crossing a line that, at least from an American legal perspective, would be totally unacceptable. The other issue I have, of course, with this is that in my limited experience, one of the few relationships I've actually seen kind of torn apart and, and then later with a remarriage put back together again, was my aunt's relationship where there were allegations that, that there'd been some misbehavior, that there'd been some mistreatment. And you wonder if a man who is otherwise violent, cold, and indifferent to his wife, never commits adultery. If on some level he kind of commits himself to something of a hermit-like sexual lifestyle anyway, and just doesn't break the marital bonds in that particular fashion, just exactly how abusive can he be? How neglectful? How violent? How harsh? Or within the bounds of their matrimonially sexual relationship, again, how abusive can he be? How violent? How harsh? How much damage can he do before some of the more conservative members of the clergy would decide that, yes, this may not be a situation where someone has committed adultery in the traditional definition of that word, but have the marital 
vows not been violated in some really egregious way. Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount about this idea of committing adultery within your heart. And it's this notion that he's offering in the Sermon on the Mount that it's not enough to just say, well, you know, I haven't technically violated any of those rules. I mean, I think from a strict Sermon on the Mount perspective, there's no question that Bill Clinton committed adultery with Monica Lewinsky. And perhaps the single most famous you know, marital betrayal story of recent decades. But Jesus meant more than that. It wasn't just that, you know, in Bill Clinton's narrow expectation of of sexual intercourse, or maybe even the missionary position of sexual intercourse being the only definition of quote-unquote sex, and anything else fell outside that definition, where I think for most of us, clearly what was exchanged between them was legally sex, perhaps sex of a different sort than you know, what the missionary position would prescribe, but nevertheless, sex. But Jesus takes it a step further and says, hey, you know, when you look lustfully at that person, you're in essence having sex with that person in your heart, and therefore you've committed adultery within your heart. Now, from that perspective, I think it's almost the definition of being human to be an adulterer. But if you're willing to extend the definition of adultery out to that liberal of an extreme in a formal sermon, before one of your largest congregations, with words that you expected people to hang on and live by, or truthfully, fail to live by, and therefore recognize that God's help is needed to accomplish even the simplest forms of faithfulness. But if you establish that that you can commit adultery in that manner, then certainly you could commit adultery by being violent towards your spouse, that at some point you can break that bond of trust and perhaps that bond of matrimony. And yet in my lifetime, and certainly in a couple of decades before my lifetime, we saw numerous instances of the church telling people that they had to stay married in very broken, dysfunctional, probably even abusive and violent relationships because some human standard of adultery, which may or may not fully represent what God had in mind, and certainly seems somewhat in places inconsistent with what Jesus taught, that that human standard of adultery had to be tripped before permission from the church could be granted. And so you've got a devout woman in my aunt who was very unwilling to throw away her wedding vows casually any more than her sisters did, represented by the stability in, in some of the other marriages that surrounded me in my lifetime. I mean, my grandparents stayed married until death, so forth and so on. But in this case, being trapped in those circumstances, because the church and the state have some sort of power over you that you're not even really, maybe in 1940s and 50s America, equipped to walk away from a dangerous situation. Well, that seems to me to be a woeful misinterpretation of Scripture. In other words, the compassion has to come first. And if we cannot take care of people's needs on that level, if we can't keep them safe, for example, There really is no righteousness to be found in making sure that they stay married. And what you see when you look into some of the histories is that there were couples who stayed married for their entire lives, but perhaps not happily married. And perhaps not only not happily married, maybe married in name only, living in different rooms, certainly in different beds, perhaps even in different houses. Again, very much married in name only. This doesn't necessarily bring glory to the analogies that are made throughout the New Testament about marriage being a representation of Christ and the church. 
if this is the best we can do in terms of imitating that reputation between Christ and the church, I want to rethink our definition of marriage. Of course, I've just said some of the most dangerous words of all, right? This definition of marriage has a great deal of hysteria built around it. But I think nothing that I've shared so far in this inappropriate conversation is going to be viewed as upsetting or in any way even controversial when it comes to what we might call the definition of divorce. In other words, we've redefined the definition of divorce in ways that in some cases make sense, but even when they don't make sense, we haven't lost a heck of a lot of sleep over it. And it's another example in America, like the way we've managed our healthcare system, where we're so totally obsessed with one side of what should be an equal equation that we're completely imbalanced on the other side in ways that just don't make sense. I've spoken of it before, not in a complete show, but until you figure out how to make sure that you have answered the question of how people are covered for health care, it doesn't make any sense to have a system built on the guarantee that everyone will receive health care, whether they paid for it or not. You need to address both the front door and the back door of any holistic system. And here, similar issues. We've addressed some of the problems, perhaps, perhaps clumsily, with how to end a relationship, which is dysfunctional and at times even dangerous. But we still don't have a good answer for how to manage the beginning of that relationship. What you have instead is you have a lot of couples who have bypassed the process of marriage altogether. And you've got other couples who desperately want to get married, but either feel through societal pressure or by state law that they're not allowed. This poses an interesting problem and one that I won't even presume to address, much less try to resolve today. It's just enough to put it out there that laws have a place in these questions, whether they be otherwise uh, personal issues, marriage, divorce, raising kids, or whether they be more legal issues in terms of things like you know theft and violent crime. The law has a place, but the law is only going to be effective when the law itself is implemented in an economically sound way. And if there's one concept that I want to put out there today that I still haven't seen you know, widely addressed, and that's if we were to get serious about the idea of eliminating divorce, well, then the first thing you've got to do is you've got to deal with the question of adultery. As I mentioned earlier in the show, even by a 1950s perspective with a strict sort of church-state kind of an incestuous relationship there, controlling what people could do with their legal matrimonial relationships, you could set a standard that says, well, we're not going to permit any divorce unless there's adultery involved. How exactly do you stop two couples from committing adultery against each other for the purpose of obtaining the divorce that they've always wanted all along? And for that reason, I've never taken seriously this idea that anyone who complains about the divorce rate in this country is in the least bit interested in dealing with it. Now, there was a moment, though. There was a brief moment in time when the scandal broke out late in the 1990s over the Clinton administration where the issue was adultery before it turned into questions of testimony under oath and so forth. If you'd like to hear my point of view about high crimes and misdemeanors and perjury and obstruction of justice and testimony under oath, that's what Inappropriate Conversations 40 is for. It's available on the website at www.inappropriateconversations.org because I don't necessarily have a full set of episodes that are available at any point in time on the feeds in places like iTunes and Zune and Stitcher. On the other hand, 
there's another story to be told there that isn't necessarily the legal question surrounding high crimes and misdemeanors. The other story to be told is what would have happened if we as a country had decided that this was completely unacceptable rather than being well, far too common. It's probably the way I would word it. And that once and for all, we were going to deal with it. We were going to stamp out the problem of adultery. Now, we hear a lot of talk about legislating morality and how legislating morality doesn't work. And on one level, I sort of agree with that. I think that a lot of the things that have been proposed by the religious right fall under the heading of pre-political. I've quoted author Oz Ganes before on this question. And ironically, probably if you looked from a political spectrum perspective, you'd find Oz Ganes to the right of me. And you could make an argument that he's actually part of the religious right. But in his book, Fit Bodies, Fat Minds, When Evangelicals Don't Think and What to Do About It, Ganes has a really great quote where he calls out some of the biggest issues of our day, things like abortion, for example, or you know, questions of homosexual rights. He refers to these things as being pre-political, that there really isn't a good legislative answer to these kinds of questions that face us regarding these issues, that there's a morality there that doesn't necessarily translate easily into law. And I agree with him. I agree with him in a way that perhaps a lot of his friends and colleagues in the religious right would not necessarily agree with him. But he seems to have a recognition of the idea that there is something inherently absurd about the notion of getting a group of people together at a polling place, say on a Tuesday in November, and asking them to vote on whether a completely different set of people should have the same rights, privileges, and responsibilities as everybody else that certain things probably should never be put to a vote. There's something obscene, not about what these people may do in the privacy of their home, but about whether or not somebody else in town has a right to vote on whether they have permission or not. It's a very un-American idea, and yet unfortunately, a very common now, these days, American idea. Now, there's a lot of people who are more liberal than I am, we're absolutely ecstatic that four states have recently got together, voted, and decided that they're going to permit gay marriage. I can't let any sense of agreement or disagreement I may have with that overwhelm the kind of sadness that I feel over the notion that at some point in an American way of life, we decided we had the right to vote on that. Now, I'm not criticizing the decisions, and I'm not criticizing those voters or those states. If the only way to address the issue was to get together in the polls and vote on it, then by all means, vote on it. But it's actually when to read from the perspective of history, like a staggering condemnation of our society, who we are as the American people at this point in time, that we got together to vote on whether someone else has the right to be in a relationship with another person, and whether or not we're even willing to acknowledge the possibility that they may be in love with each other. Seems... Again, obscene seems like the right word for perfect strangers having a point of view about that or being willing to exercise their political will either for it or against it. But that does give me a segue into the idea of how would you legislate if you were to choose to play this game? How would you legislate on the issue of adultery? And somewhere in the midst of the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal, I got an idea. 
the Pollyanna Cowgirl Records podcast. So it's like someone saying I love you to you once a week. Tony Pucci specifically. Tony Pucci specifically. Hi, this is Tony Pucci of the Pollyanna Cowgirl Records podcast. I'd like to invite you to join me each week as I play one hour of pod-safe pop and rock music. You can find the show at PollyannaCowgirl.com or at the host podcast network site, simplysyndicated.com. Peace and love. When it comes to attempting to legislate personal behavior, again, always a minefield, always likely to fail. But when it comes to the idea of doing it, the most important principle to understand is that the issue is not going to be predominantly legal. It's going to be predominantly economic. Now, I've named Steve Levitt as a different drummer and recommend, frankly, the books Freakonomics. There's more than one now. And uh, in the Just Say No anti-drug sort of episode, I talked a little bit about the notion of incentives and the role that they play. But to me, the best example probably is adultery. It's absurd to me, first off, to think that everything I'm about to say would ever happen. So I'm not making an advocacy position here that this is the kind of law I would want to see. It's not. Consider it a thought experiment. But on some level, it's kind of absurd to me to hear people say that there's nothing you can do from a legal perspective, that there's no way you could address this issue, that there's no hope of having any sort of legislative influence. I believe you can. I just think you have to be serious about it. Take, for example, the kind of the obvious answer of, is there any way to stop people from speeding? You know, like when I was a kid, I can remember the time before the speed limit was 55 and then the era when it was pretty strictly 55 and then the Reagan administration stepping in and trouncing on what little federalism that Reagan still claimed to believe in by forcing everybody you know, at the expense of their highway funds to agree that nationwide, the interstates anyway, would all be 55 miles an hour. But then the sort of joke is that it didn't really matter what the speed limit was because you can't force people to obey that particular rule. It's among the least important rules. It's hard to get people to abide by it. And yeah, I think most of us who've driven a while sort of knew, even back then in that era, because I learned how to drive when the speed limit was 55, and sort of laughed um, somewhat mockingly, but also somewhat seriously at Sammy Hager and his hit single, I Can't Drive, 55. And Jello Biafra of the Dead Kennedys making fun of him, referring to him as somebody who was so dumb he can't drive 55. But most of us knew if you're going, you know, 61, 62 miles an hour, even if the radar picks you up as speeding, it's not going to be, quote unquote, worth the highway patrolman's time. That there's a parameter where there's sort of a hedge around 55 miles an hour where you're not going to get in trouble if you go slower than that, at least to a certain extent. But you're also not going to get in trouble if you push the envelope higher, again, to just a certain extent. But is there a way of forcing people to obey that law? And it's really fairly simple. You just have to make the economic consequences of disobeying the law so high that people will drive 55. What if, for example, driving 56 miles an hour or faster on any road at any time ever for any circumstances was punishable by death and was punishable by death without the benefit of due process? The highway patrolman would simply pull you over, show you the radar gun, confirm that you were going too fast, and shoot you in the head. And then someone would come along later and scrape you off the road like you were roadkill. Yeah, that's, of course, an, an absurd exaggeration. But I'm pretty sure that in that kind of an environment, you could stop people from speeding. 
The consequence, though, is interesting. If I were an entrepreneur and a law like that regarding the speed limit was to be passed, one of the first things I would do would be to set up a garage that specialized in disabling whatever functions were necessary in a car or installing navigational systems beyond what the manufacturer provides that would prohibit a car from going more than 55 miles an hour under any circumstances whatsoever. I'd create some device or we'd put something into vehicles that once you got to the 54th mile per hour, your car would just simply shut down. Just the number one priority becomes not people suddenly turning their engines off on the highway and pulling off to the corner because they're afraid of going too fast. The number one issue would be going too fast. That one of these is a matter of life and death, and the other one, you know, is not. Now, realistically, today, if people suddenly started slamming on the brakes, whenever they were going down a fairly steep grade of hill, and their car got to move too fast, it might actually be creating more of a dangerous driving situation than going more than 55 miles an hour when you hit the bottom of that hill. So again, I'm not making a policy recommendation here that Congress should take me up on. I'm just simply attacking the naive idea that there are certain areas of law where, quote-unquote, nothing can be done. Not only could something be done, but somebody could make millions of dollars selling devices to make sure that no one accidentally broke that law and had to face the lethal consequences of it. So is there an equivalent for this question of divorce, of safeguarding marriage against the one thing the Bible cites consistently as being a reason to get divorced? And the best incentive plan that I could come up with came to me during the Clinton scandal. And I just really felt like that a group of Republicans in particular ought to be fairly good at putting their money where their mouth is. I have unfortunately, much younger man back then, learned the hard lesson that both conservatives and liberals tend to be hypocrites and that the common factor isn't their political ideology. The word political is pretty much the common factor there. In my naive younger days, when I really felt like for a couple of months there, the real issue was that Bill Clinton had violated his trust with his marriage more than his trust with the American people, which is how it would eventually be packaged and sold and what the Senate would ultimately fail to you know, ratify, fail to implement. But during that span, when it was all about adultery, my thought was this is not hard to solve. We simply need to create an incentive plan that divides the American people into three groups. And it's not going to be cheap. We'll need a, a body, an investigative team with the arm, the reach, and the you know, tenacity of the IRS to manage it. And that's when it clicked. It probably is an IRS purview to manage this solution. You simply say that there are three kinds of people in the world. They're the kind of people who have never committed adultery. They're the kind of people who've just committed adultery. And they're the kind of people who have formerly committed adultery. And then you establish incentives that are so harsh that only the least reasonable among us would, would dare cross the line. And in the process, well, I think first off, you really, you do a lot to put a great deal of disadvantage on people who qualify as polyamorous by some standard. But if we ignore the open marriage crowd, if we ignore you know, genuine you know, instances of polyamory and you say, you know, our society is going to be better off if people find a mate, commit to the mate and stay committed. And maybe if I, I have this liberal idea that maybe we'll just ignore all the premarital instances and just go with from the time that you say I do from that point forward, the clock's running. Now, here's kind of how it would work. If you have in the past calendar year during the, say, the taxable year committed an act of adultery. 
then some outrageous number will be levied against you as a, as a tax, as a fine. Now, I realize that I'm speaking you know, about an issue that conservatives have passion about in terms of dealing with adultery, dealing with sexual and marital misconduct. But I'm also telling them, hey, the only way you can handle this situation is to give up this notion of being taxed enough already and em- embrace a few strategic elements of taxation, trying to control, for example, like we would the use of tobacco or the use of alcohol. And whether we think those taxes are wise, whether we think those taxes work, that is the vehicle that we've established to handle these so-called vices. So let's set aside this idea of being taxed enough already, because taxation is ultimately going to drive this solution. Okay, so if you're in this group of people where you have committed adultery in this year, then you will have 5% of your net worth taken from you, 10% of your net worth. It can't just be your earnings or your employment because you might have a situation where a non-working spouse, either the husband or the wife, uh, back then I would have probably guessed that it would have been a housewife scenario. What if that is the individual who's committed adultery? No, you've, you've got to make this tax serious enough to provide an incentive for both spouses to pro- prohibit the you know the problematic behavior among either one of the two spouses, that the cost is going to be very severe for both of them. Because the first thing that happens is, whether we call this a 5% of net worth or a 10% of net worth, it's a flat tax, meaning that if you're the kind of people who are the wealthy, captain of industry, sort of rich and perverse sorts, rich and strange, as Alfred Hitchcock might have referred to it, then you've got a bigger burden to bear because 5% of your net worth is going to be one heck of a lot more expensive than 5% of the net worth of somebody who's the assistant manager at Wendy's or McDonald's. But nevertheless, that money goes to the government. Now, part of that money will go to self-fund this program because the amount of private investigative work that the government is going to have to do to ascertain when someone's committed adultery where one of the side effects of this law like the side effects of the speeding law, sending people to doctor and alter their vehicles to make sure the car never accidentally goes too fast. Well, now you've got a husband and wife who are going to be very motivated to stay together in a marriage despite the adultery. Because not only is divorce expensive, but this law is hanging out there too. So you're relatively unlikely to have a lot of spouses outing their spouse for committing this crime that we've established. So you have to have this investigative team. It's going to chew up a lot of dollars to make that happen. But it's worth it because our society has decided that this is one of our biggest problems. It's the kind of problem that you would impeach a president over. It's a big deal. It's a high crime, in other words. So this money goes to the government coffers, and whether it's 5% or 10%, whatever the number has to be. Again, we're talking about net worth. So you could have people who are suddenly in a situation where they have to put their house on the market or sell a car or sell a boat. Because you cannot shelter the money in this sense in any way whatsoever. You can't just refuse to take a salary this year because you've decided that this is the year you're going to cheat on your wife. Because the tax isn't about your earnings. It's about your worth. That money goes into the government kitty. Now, there's this other group of people who, for the past calendar year, did not commit any adultery whatsoever. But they're on the books. The IRS, for one of a better example, has them dead to rights on past adultery. So if you ever committed adultery in the past, but you haven't now, you're not going to be penalized unless you've committed adultery again. But you're also not going to benefit. You see, this is a classic stick and carrot situation. It doesn't work if there's only a punitive measure, if there's only a stick. There also needs to be a carrot. So the other notion is, 
let's say we take half of this annual coffer, half of this kitty that gets created whenever we've levied the taxation fine, the punitive tax against people who've committed adultery in the past year. And that could grow to be a fairly substantial number. And you have a certain portion of it that you take aside. Maybe it's half. Maybe some of that funds this investigative wing. Maybe some of it goes to other you know, government functions. But the other half, almost like a lottery, is set aside to be equally divided among all of those couples throughout the country who have never had an instance of adultery in their relationship. You see, if the government's going to get it up in our business and tell us how to live our lives and tell us who we can marry and tell us who we can't, tell us when we can divorce and tell us when we can't, then the government needs to provide at least some sort of reward for those who do it the quote-unquote right way. And that incentive would probably go a lot further to controlling people's sexual misbehavior than any punishment ever would. Because somehow in the minds of people who are going to break a rule or a law, whether that be driving 55, yeah, whether it be stealing an extra sip at the Coke fountain at, at the convenience store, whatever it may be, that individual is always going to be able to lie to himself or herself about the probability that they may or may not actually just flat out get away with it. And, of course, you'd have to have some rule in place that comes along later and says, you know what, if we find out that you committed adultery three years ago and you've covered it up until now, then maybe that's the difference between 5 and 10%. Maybe the 5% is the standard, you did it, we caught you. And the 10% is, you did it, you didn't come clean about it, we didn't find out about it until later. You'd still only be punished once, but the one-time punishment would be much more severe. So, But there would always be that group of people who feel like, yeah, I can get away with this. I can pull one over on the man. Now, you're going to get much more mileage on the incentive side of saying, hey, I've said I do. I've said till death do us part. I've promised to be faithful to this individual. And all I got to do is live up to that pledge and do so for the rest of my life. And on an annual basis, the government's going to give me a check. Now, if there's lots of people who are capable of being faithful, then that check may not be very large. Who knows? But it only takes a couple of Rockefellers to commit adultery for that number to get pretty big in any given year, especially if the law is carefully written to guarantee that at least half of it gets distributed from the committed adultery this year group to the never committed adultery in their lifetime, where then, of course, you've got this group in the middle who, unless they commit adultery again, aren't going to get fined again, but they're never going to experience the benefit. In other words, if I were campaigning on this issue, and if for some sick and twisted reason, adultery was identified as the biggest problem we have to deal with as a nation, this might actually be the way I campaign. I can wipe out adultery. It's going to cost us something, though. In fact, it may cost us a lot more than being taxed enough already, than adding a wing of private investigators to look into the sexual lives of citizens and attaching it to the IRS, or this redistribution of wealth or what have you, where you're taking money away from people who misbehave and giving it to the people who do behave. But on some level, that's exactly the kind of rhetoric we hear. When people start talking about the government doing something about divorce or about adultery or about people living together or about homosexual couples or whatever it may be, at some point, on some level, the government is either going to have to intrude in this way to this degree or they're going to have to intrude in a much more clumsy, inept and ineffective manner. If the government's going to get involved in the divorce business, they might as well try to solve it. 
It's a tricky thing to name a different drummer on an episode that's all about divorce, because you could pick somebody that you admire who's got a fairly famous persona who isn't divorced now and has seems to have a great marital relationship and a great family focus, and that person could trip up, slip up, and screw it all up later, which is why probably the safest thing for me to do is to make a posthumous claim. John Hughes is that kind of different drummer. Now, first... Hughes has been on my list for quite some time. He's a maker of movies that I admire. He had the benefit of making few enough, at least as a director, that he didn't have a chance to make something that I personally find to be hideously embarrassing. I think there is a range of good, better, best within his work. And I think some of the things that we ascribe to him as the creator that I may view as a little bit more dubious, he really wasn't the director of. And his contributions to Hollywood are really fairly prolific, considering he's worked as a writer, director, executive producer, and producer. But when you leave the writing and the production credits out and just focus on him as a director, the John Hughes story is actually pretty simple. John Hughes, from a directing credit perspective, has made movies between 1984 and 1991, so not even a full decade as a full-time director. And his titles are Sixteen Candles, The Breakfast Club, Weird Science, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, By the way, I'm reading these in order. That's a heck of a start. He followed this up with Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, She's Having a Baby, Uncle Buck, and Curly Sue. But that really isn't the whole John Hughes story. He started off with a screenplay for National Lampoon's Class Reunion. And I'll get to National Lampoon again in just a moment. But he also contributed as a screenwriter, or a story writer, to Mr. Mom, Vacation, Pretty in Pink, Some Kind of Wonderful, The Great Outdoors, Home Alone, fairly prolific delivery. I haven't even covered it all. I could go on and on and on. It's why I think of John Hughes primarily as being a writer and secondarily as being a director. But certainly from the direction perspective, you're going to do a lot worse than finding a person whose directing credits go from 16 Candles, The Breakfast Club, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off down to Curly Sue. These are good films, and by and large, most of them successful. What stopped him making movies, at least as a director, so early in 1991 was his commitment to his family, his notion that he had a marriage that he wanted to safeguard. Like me, John Hughes met his wife in high school, and they were married you know, not long after that post-high school decision about education and career had been made. He was working writing advertising copy at first, but would eventually go on to have stories published in National Lampoon and to be working on the writing staff of National Lampoon, kind of in that era when they as a magazine had branched into movies and you began seeing that journey from Animal House to Class Reunion to Vacation. John Hughes, as a writer contributing to National Lampoon, has produced at least one of my favorite stories in the history of that magazine. I don't have a recollection of having read the follow-up, but I will never forget having read the short story that he wrote called My Penis. The follow-up was My Vagina, and it's not hard to figure out what the you know, corresponding element is in the storylines. I remember my brother's room. In my room, there may or may not have been a chest that may or may not have had issues of Penthouse, Playboy, and Forum in it. It's a different episode for a different time. But 
in my brother's room, the publication that he had hidden away, that he didn't want to take any risk that might be confiscated and taken from him, was an issue of National Lampoon's magazine, and it was the one that included the uh, the original publication of My Penis. The plot line's fairly simple, and it's one that actually Hughes essentially, he didn't disavow the story, but he didn't consider it to be a proud piece of his resume. So I'm, I'm going in a direction that he wouldn't go were he still alive to speak for himself. But a teenage girl wakes up, discovers that her genitalia has completely changed genders on her, and now she has, for the first time out of the blue, with no explanation (laughs) and no roadmap on how to handle it, she has a penis, and she doesn't really know what to do about it. The story takes a lot of the obvious twists and turns, but in addition to being very funny, it also has some genuinely poignant moments and some interestingly challenging moments in terms of what do you deal with this particular flood of emotions and set of circumstances for the very first time? Quite obviously, my vagina, the opposite story from the opposite point of view. And I just didn't happen to own that particular issue of uh, National Lampoon to have read it for myself. Among the other short stories he had published was one called Vacation 58, which became the genesis for the entire series of vacation films. So when you think about growing up in the 1980s and 90s, or even the late 70s, 80s, and 90s, John Hughes, in some ways, was your filmmaker. And I mean this in a way that I really don't think I could, I could make a claim about anybody else today. He was in a unique point in time where he was making, essentially, PG and PG-13 movies for under 16, or at least under 18-year-old audiences, where at the time that he was putting his movies out, a lot of the competition was coming from shows like Porky's, Hard Bodies, Weekend Pass, The Last American Virgin, A lot of the competition in that market was R-rated movies and things which, you know, were flicks, which now I think we'd find upsetting. I mean, the idea was we're showing you characters. I mean, the actors were surely over 18 years old, but we're showing them to you in plots as if they were 15, 16, 17 years old. And the movies have a tremendous amount of nudity in them. So whether it's true that you're looking at an underage actress, I doubt, but you're certainly looking at an underage character in a very prurient way. And don't get me wrong, there are elements of of sexuality, of voyeurism, and other things in the John Hughes films, but by and large, they're much more sweet, much more sentimental, and they have a tendency to stay in the PG side of the spectrum as opposed to the R-rated side of the spectrum, meaning that no one ever questioned me about whether it was appropriate for me to go to see that movie. Uh, Breakfast Club was probably rated R because of language more than anything else. Sixteen Candles had a very brief moment of nudity in it that you almost never see in a in a TV cut today. In fact, I think I even remember seeing it once on pay TV with that segment edited out. It does kind of lift right out. It's not a necessary scene to drive the plot. But for the most part, making movies that were appealing to teenagers, but appealing to teenagers in a way where it you know didn't necessarily cross the same sort of line that the Porky's series of films did. And yet I don't know of anybody among my contemporaries who viewed these films by John Hughes as in any way being prudish or childish or unacceptable. A John Hughes movie, at least when I was watching in the the 1980s, was something to be anticipated, something to look forward to. As you might imagine, with a figure as prominent and well-known as Hughes, there are good podcasts out there. If you can find a good directory that goes back a couple of years with reminiscing, with tribute shows... Among my favorites are Stuck in the 80s and Masters of None. Each one of those podcasts did a very good job looking back to John Hughes' career and his influence at the time of his death. I want to refer quickly to a 
just a quick obituary, one of many. This one I found at www.riverblue.com backslash Hughes. And it just basically succinctly says what needs to be said. John Hughes passed away on August 6, 2009 of heart failure in New York City. He is survived by his wife of 39 years, Nancy, and his two sons, James and John, and four grandchildren. By all accounts, John was visiting New York City to visit his grandkids. The commitment that he had talked about in terms of backing away from film direction and spending more time with his family being readily available when his kids had their own kids so that he could be present as a grandfather and not always in Hollywood or somewhere else shooting a movie. Well, he made good on that. When he stopped making movies in the early 90s, he stopped making movies. And despite the fact that he continued to contribute screenplays to movies like Home Alone and Home Alone 2, he nevertheless was able to fulfill the promise that he made to himself and to his family when he decided to commit himself to those relationships. John Hughes, in other words, safeguarded his marriage and ultimately in 2009 made good on the pledge, till death do us part. I feel like I need to put it a big allegedly around this entire episode. I'm truly speaking about divorce from the perspective of being able to make some claims that we have some really naive ideas about relationships. And, you know, we'll talk about that the first time and you never forget the first time. Well, I'm going to I'm going to hit that idea maybe next week. If I stick to my schedule, I'll get there. But the first thing I needed to do was just sort of deal right up front with this question of what happens at the end of the relationship? What is the collateral? Well, for some people, they stay committed. They stay married. They avoid divorce for theological reasons. They're concerned about their eternal soul. Or they want to do things Jesus' way. And there's plenty of evidence in the Bible that Jesus had a perspective on the issue. Certainly of adultery, if not of divorce. For some people, it's just a question of, you know, life becomes less complicated and in some ways less expensive if you fulfill your promises and stick within a relationship. But I don't think that describes me at all. I think that my commitment to my marriage, my commitment to this relationship, it's bigger than that. It's not based on avoiding the stick of bad things that happen to you when you screw stuff up. And the only way I can describe it as a carrot is to do so in almost spiritual terms. We don't have laws right now that hand me a big bonus check at the end of each year for being a good husband. It doesn't work that way. But I will tell you, there's no place that I would rather be right now than away from this desk and with my wife. And I guess, maybe, I'll stop this podcast shortly and abruptly and do just that. Leave you and trade you in for my wife. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
music by Kevin McLeod.